Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Firstly, we're a day late today because my microphone broke last night. Hopefully, you can hear the difference in quality this week. Of the sound, that is. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my new patron supporters this week. That's JB Popplewell, Claire Morrison, Susie Hobday, Nick Beard and Annie Wright. I really appreciate your support so much and the 12th full-length bonus episode is written and I'll record and release it this week. It's a cracker. I'll also finally record another video of me talking about the podcast this week so there's lots of exclusive content for you to hopefully enjoy. We are going to take a break from murder this week and good friend of the show, Chris Wood, has again done a fantastic job of researching a case I hadn't heard of before from the late 90s, which he has called the Flat Cap Robber. It's a really interesting story and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's set some context for the story, which began in 1995. Remember 1995? It was New Year's Day when Fred West was found hanged in his cell in Winston Green Prison in Birmingham. West, of course, was on remand awaiting trial for the horrific acts that he and his wife Rose had committed. At the end of January, that much-loved footballer Eric Cantona, with all his flair and flamboyancy, went jumping into the Selhurst Park crowd during a match against Crystal Palace. That saw Cantona banned for the remainder of the season, And come to think of it, we could probably do a true crime episode on Cantona's behaviour alone. I mean, come on, what sort of behaviour would take a step down from the mighty Leeds United to head across the Pennines to join a lesser team such as Manchester United? Well, I just don't understand it. Six years after the last film, James Bond returned to the big screen, this time in the guise of Piers Brosnan in GoldenEye. I wonder who your favourite Bond is. I know that Connery's a big favourite for many of you, but I have to say he was never really my thing. I was always much more a fan of the late, great Roger Moore. The UK music scene in 1995 was as diverse as ever. We started the year with East 17, Stay Another Day at number one, but this was replaced with Rednecks and Cotton-Eyed Joe. I know that Chris Wood is a big fan. Ever had a cheeky dance to that one? Bet you have. In the middle of the year, Robson and Jerome are top of the charts for a total of seven insanely long weeks with Unchained Melody. They destroyed that song, didn't they? The wannabe crooners were at it again in November and early December with I Believe surviving for four weeks at the summit. Do any of you actually know who is who? Is Jerome the bloke who does the fishing shows on random freeview channels now? Or is that the other guy? I don't know. Who actually bought their stuff anyway? And who is today's equivalent? Enough, Adam, enough. On with the story. Today's case spans a two and a half year period from the latter part of 1995 until June 1998. The crime spree saw 32 separate raids carried out across central England and Wales. Anyone who worked in a bank or a building society during this period enjoyed a very real and menacing worry that they too might be caught up in an armed robbery. Building societies in Leicestershire, Staffordshire, Shropshire, Cheshire, Carnarvon, Derbyshire, Warwickshire, North Yorkshire and Lancashire 
made up an exhaustive list of counties that were targeted by a one-man crime spree. As the trail of terrorised victims grew, the more it appeared that the police, and indeed the public, feared the culprit would never be caught. And I guess he probably felt the same way. He must have started to feel invincible. In June 1998, whoever was committing these robberies appeared to be at the height of their daringness. In fact, at this time he was considered Britain's most prolific armed robber and he would provide a young member of Skipton Bill Society's team with a terrifying baptism of fire. The young employee was working his first week at the branch when he was threatened by an armed man. But in what was a trademark of the offender, there were no raised voices, no shouting and no aggressive behaviour taking place here. In fact, half the staff who were in the branch at the time were actually unaware that a robbery had even taken place. The employee later described the raider as being forceful but quite cool and quietly spoken as he demanded the cash with threats. Despite the apparent genial nature of the criminal, the level of threat this man was creating throughout England and Wales cannot be understated. Brandishing a wheel brace wrapped in a carrier bag to resemble a firearm, trembling cashiers would understandably hand over to him hundreds and often thousands of pounds. I don't know if you've been in that situation before yourself, but if not, what would you do in those situations? You must have pondered it. I know that my wife wouldn't give him a penny, but I would just hand the whole lot over straight away. Following this offence, on the same day the robber made a 25-minute drive to a nearby branch to again demand money from a building society. I mean, wow, under half an hour apart. He must have just thrived on the adrenaline. The crimes were repeated time after time, and police were understandably concerned about their failure to apprehend a man that had committed so many robberies. But in committing the raids, he'd inadvertently provided police with excellent pictures. The big problem for the police was the descriptions they had of him matched any number of men in Britain. Around 50 years of age, he was small at 5 foot 4 inches tall, he had thinning hair and a love for Marks and Spencer's woolly jumpers. I know, he sounds like any number of men that either you or I know. So, this rather unremarkable middle-aged man, often sporting an array of hats and glasses to act as a disguise, had some of the country's most experienced police officers flummoxed. Detectives had excellent pictures of him in action, as well as painstaking analysis of his height, walk, hair and clothes, but still no breakthrough was forthcoming. It was then the police began to show some innovation and to think outside the box coming up with different methods that it was hoped would finally bring the offender to justice and end one of the most strange investigations in British history. An FBI-trained artist produced a likeness based on witness interviews and video footage. The drawing was circulated throughout the media and even appeared on, yep, that place again, the BBC's popular Crime Watch UK programme, which back then, before they messed about with the whole format and ruined it, it generated a huge response from the public. And in this case, it was the same. More than 600 names were suggested as possible suspects on the back of the Crime Watch appeal. 
This is a phenomenal number of suspects, which on the face of it would appear to be brilliant news for the police in the hunt for their man. But if we pause to think about it for a moment, that's a lot of work to get through. 600 leads to follow up from the public is a lot of work for a police force under pressure. And clearly, an awful lot of these were not going to be the man they were looking for, but rather a standard looking guy, and one where, well, we all probably know someone that looked just like the man the police wanted. And it was this offender's very ordinariness that was allowing him to avoid capture for so long, as he just blended in amongst all the other men of his description. Detective Inspector Pat Caulfield, leading the investigation, commented that never had they so many images of an offender without getting a positive identification. Despite none of the hundreds of names that were offered yielding a positive ID, the Crime Watch broadcast did initiate one vital breakthrough. Witnesses to the robbery of a building society in Cannock, Staffordshire, which at this point had not been linked to the flat cap robber, contacted detectives claiming that the man they believed featured on Crime Watch had also raided their premises only weeks earlier. This led officers to study CCTV footage of this incident and they identified the car used by the robber. It was a Ford Sierra Azura 1992-1993 model which was one of only 2,500 vehicles to be made. Police then scrutinised hours worth of video footage from the other raids and this distinctive car was identified at the scene of several of his crimes. FBI crime experts were again called in to assist, but the suspect fitted no psychological or physical profile of the average armed robber, further proof that his sheer mundane and everyday appearance was counselling out the police's efforts as he just blurred into obscurity, like an ex-winner of X Factor. We've heard many times on this podcast about the police's efforts and the need for forensic evidence, anything that might help unlock the identity of the perpetrator. In this case, they had those excellent images of the suspect, but they just could not link the images to a name. One consistent feature of the robber was his particular liking of wearing a flat cap during his robberies. Now, I know we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but you really wouldn't suspect this middle-aged man wearing a flat cap of being capable of wreaking such fear across the country. Mind you, it's not unique that a rather dull, anonymous man can cause such fear and ruin the lives of so many. Take a look at Jeremy Hunt, for example. With this in mind, efforts needed to be upped in order to apprehend the man. What followed was a utilisation of a range of unprecedented techniques and methods. First, they turned to an unlikely source based with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as they drafted in one of their geographical profilers, Kim Rosmo, who you may have heard of, based in Vancouver, who studied a map of the robbery locations to then advise police on where the offender was most likely to live. As we know, this type of resource is of course now fairly commonplace, but in 1995, it was pretty groundbreaking. They then focused on the way the suspect walked, so sought advice from an expert in gait problems, a pedologist, I think it's called, to ascertain if he'd suffered a hip injury, which may have been responsible for the slightly strange, unusual way he walked. He had a slightly odd gait. They even consulted a trichologist 
to judge whether or not his thinning hair had been dyed. As if a middle-aged man with thinning hair would dye his hair. Surely not. Measurements were taken of building society furniture to help produce an accurate physical profile. Whilst the British Shoe Foundation were consulted on his probable shoe size, and experts at Nottingham Trent University were contacted about the man's clothing sizes. I think this type of leaving no stone unturned approach gives an insight into just how much the Staffordshire Police Force prioritised catching the man. The sheer number and frequency of the offences put some real pressure on the force. You can just imagine the Chief Constable at the time, at drinks, receptions and dinners, facing a number of difficult conversations about the abject failure to catch someone who on the surface appeared to be an amateur. And no doubt, this Chief Constable shared their, hmm, frustration, shall we say, with more junior colleagues. The culmination of this collection of information enabled officers to produce what they hoped would provide the breakthrough in catching the wanted man. I never thought I'd say it, but here we go. A life-size cardboard cutout of the wanted man was commissioned. The technique had never been used before in a criminal investigation, but it would provide the key to eventually capture the elusive culprit. And hey, if it didn't work, the cutout could always be used in future years as a presenter on the BBC's One Show. As it was such an unusual move, the cardboard cutout caused intense media interest following its unveiling at a news conference in January 1998. And it seemed to do the trick. The incident room related to the investigation, codenamed Operation Tornado, received more than 400 calls. But it wasn't until two days later when officers appeared with a cardboard cutout on the ITV show This Morning, you know, with Richard and Judy, that the crucial breakthrough came. Again, I have to say, that's definitely a sentence you're not going to hear on Sword and Scale. A man from the Buxton area of Derbyshire was watching the show, and he was certain that he knew who the cardboard cutout was. He'd also seen much of the media coverage relating to Operation Tornado, and had even commented to his wife that he thought that the flat cap robber resembled Christopher Frank Wood, a 53-year-old man from Buxton. Seeing both Wood and the images of the white Ford Sierra on this morning, he linked the two together, having seen Wood using this make of car, and he immediately rang the police with the information. Inquiries were initiated right away, and Christopher Wood was identified. It was soon discovered that he had major financial problems, and so it was that Wood was listed as a prime suspect. Officers went to his house, only to discover they had been evicted, and the forwarding address he provided was false. This setback proved only a minor blip, as police would soon have their man. Officers knew that Wood worked as a collector for the cerebral palsy charity, Scope, they had a charity shop in Buxton. The irony here really is quite something. This somewhat petite family man not only lacked the appearance of a stereotypical bank robber, he also even had a commendable job. It was the 1st of February 1998 when police attended the charity shop but Wood was not on shift. But when staff told the police he was actually due to collect his wages at any moment, they knew this was definitely not to be something that he would miss or even be late for. 
and detectives lay in wait and they promptly arrested Wood. Again, ironically, as he came to collect money he'd actually worked for, as opposed to stealing. Amusingly, the officers on hand to detain Wood commented that there was something familiar about his appearance. At this point, they realised he was actually wearing the same trademark woolly jumper he was wearing in the photograph used for the cardboard cutout. He really did love those jumpers, didn't he? At Stafford Crown Court, Wood pleaded guilty to what Judge Simon Tonking described as a unique series of raids. The court heard that Wood had led a bizarre double life, where he hid soaring debts from his wife Gillian. The couple had been married for 29 years with two children, and had lived together in Buxton, but they found paying the rent and meeting everyday expenses as increasingly difficult. Wood's own counsel in court described him as a financial ostrich, isn't that a great expression? And that in hindsight there was only one major clue to what he did and when he did it. His raids always coincided with the final demand for payment of debts. It became apparent that he was widely regarded as a quiet family man with a strong work ethic. The area manager for Scope Charity Shops who worked with Wood said, At work he was a polite, well presented and helpful person. His arrest was a complete surprise and deeply shocking to all the staff who knew him. Isn't it interesting how people who've lived with people or worked with people for years are so shocked at what they can do and what they're capable of? We're not, are we? We don't trust anyone and we know that anyone is capable of anything. Behind the gentle facade, however, police claimed that he would change from a gentleman into an aggressive robber who terrorised building society staff. He was capable of displaying all the behaviours of the traditional bank robber. Detective Chief Inspector Tony Grouther asserted that Wood was a cunning individual who led a ruthless and determined campaign to rob building societies, terrifying staff with threats to kill them. Though outwardly, Wood was unassuming and reserved, and he certainly does not appear to fit the profile of the average armed robber, Crowther continued that the crimes he committed showed him to be a man with a complete disregard for the feelings of his victims, who were subjected to terrifying ordeals during which they feared for their lives. It also transpired that Woods led a double life in the family setting, hiding his mounting debts from wife Gillian and other members of the family. Detective Caulfield revealed that Wood constantly intercepted letters sent about his debts so that none of his family grew wise to the real sums of money that he owed. They didn't realise the sort of trouble he was in. But how had Wood run into such financial distress? What could have made this seemingly ordinary man pursue this persistently violent course of action? But even following his arrest, the answer to this question remained a mystery. Wood refused to speak and answer any detective's questions about his money problems. And they never did find what he did with all the money he stole from the raids. Marquise, defending, said that these attacks were not made in order to fund an extravagant lifestyle. He was not addicted to drugs or gambling, or any other type of activity that would eat into his income. He said it was all to head off final demands for payments of cash. On the one day he committed the raids in Skipton, and the one nearby just half an hour later, he was able to steal the £1,300 necessary to pay off his housing arrears. 
Indeed, in spite of the duration of Wood's robberies, overall, he only, I use the term loosely, stole a total of £38,000. Clearly, this is a lot of money, but in comparison to some of the robberies we hear about, where hundreds of thousands of pounds and above are stolen, Wood was comparatively lower end. He was small scale. The court heard how Wood's spiral of debt began in the mid-1980s, when he worked as a manager at a brickworks and he wanted to buy his own home in Buxton. Unfortunately for Wood, he lost his job in 1986 and fell behind on his mortgage payments and the house was repossessed. He then took over the tenancy of a council house, but in a similar way to his first house, he fell behind with the rent after just a few months. He also persistently failed to pay additional bills, such as council tax, and he had numerous county court judgments made against him, one for non-payment of income tax amounting to more than £10,000. Like me, I know you're surprised by that. Are friends in HMRC making life unpleasant for people? Well, who'd ever have thought it? Despite the level of fear and terror he brought to so many people, his defence stated that Wood falsely rationalised the offences as being against a thing, money, rather than real people, so it wouldn't hurt anyone. This is how he sought to justify his actions. He was described as being just a bad manager of money and someone that really strictly put his life in different compartments, which then allowed him to live a lie, said his defence counsel Eads. To his credit, Wood did at least plead guilty, but I guess he had little choice with the cardboard cutout of himself all over the media, to 14 robberies and 16 related charges of possessing an imitation firearm of intent. He also asked for a further 12 robberies and 16 firearms offences to be taken into consideration. On Monday the 24th of May 1999, Judge Simon Tonking passed sentence on Wood. Telling him that his raids had left cashiers terrified and traumatised, the judge said, I sentence you for what has rightly been described as a campaign of robberies which took place during a period of two and a half years from the latter part of 1995 until June 1998. He described Wood's offences as amounting to unique proportions, having targeted 29 branches of 16 different building societies in 14 different counties. He impressed on Wood the levels of fear he'd subjected his victims to in his efforts to steal the money. The judge did, however, acknowledge the fact that Wood had not used violence or carried with him a real firearm during any of the raids. Nonetheless, the judge added, the fact remains that you were undeterred by conscience, fear or even the publicity which your activities eventually attracted from pursuing a relentless course of robbery. The judge continued he'd acted with remarkable calmness and that the offences pointed to a man who'd thought strategically and carefully carrying out the raids with steely resolve. It took the court clerk eight minutes to read the 32 counts on the indictment. Wood almost looked weary as he pleaded guilty to each one. Christopher Wood was jailed for 14 years on each count of robbery, for 12 years for each attempted raid, and for seven years for each firearm charge, all sentences to run concurrently. Detective Crowther, after the case, said, He's the sort of man who wouldn't say boo to a goose, 
People know him describe him as being quiet and reserved, but to those he robbed, he was a menacing, aggressive, armed robber. Following the sentencing, Wood's wife and their son and daughter left court without making any comment. What could they say? Doubtless, they were as baffled as everybody else by the robberies and the enigma that was Christopher Frank Wood, perhaps now better known to you and I as the flat cap robber. Thank you for listening to this episode and thank you Chris Wood for finding such a, well, such a strange case, isn't it really? All very, very odd. Please head to the Facebook page for the show where you can talk about this episode and all other aspects of UK true crime. To support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. There you can find, well, soon to find, 12 full-length bonus episodes plus lots of other exclusive content. And by supporting the show, you help it keep running every week. So that's all from me for now. So thank you again very much for listening. Thanks, Chris. And until we speak again next week, it's cheerio.